Welcome back or welcome to the On Coaching Podcast. My name is Steve Magnus. I'm joined by my good friend, colleague, fellow coaching buddy, Jonathan Marcus. John, what is going on? Man, I'm looking at my watch and you know what? It's time to give the people what they want. Let's go. All right. This week we've got a, I think, another fascinating topic, which is the bear in the wall. Rawr. And it's, what does that mean? Well, it's something. This is not political. We're not talking about political things either. Nope. <laughs> what it means is something that we're all familiar with as distance runners. The bear is the bear that jumps on your back and prevents you or makes you feel like you can't run. You're falling apart. You're just trudging through it. Tying up, Tying as up. they call it, yep. yep. Mm-hmm. At the end of a race, in the critical, competitive, you know, last minute of track races, but also to road races as well. Yes, and the wall is something that oftentimes gets confused for the bear, but oftentimes feels similar in the sense that they're both put you in a place where you are trying harder and going nowhere or not you know slowing down your effort is increasing but your 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 pace is not it's going the opposite direction the wall is when you know in longer races when we hit that wall the marathon when we hit that wall when our legs are no longer responding in the way that we think they should when we're losing speed despite effort increases and we can't push forward. So this week... Essentially bonking. Yes. Yes. This week, we're going to dive into those differentials and um, what we can do about that. Before we get into that, you know, John, what's the best way to deal with the bear in the wall besides listening to this podcast? How can you, how can you maybe learn to figure out how to get through those two periods? Oh, education is the key to... Running faster, running longer, running stronger. We got this thing called a scholar program, my friends. If you haven't joined, it's time. It is the best deal in town for all things distance running. The science, the history, the art, the personalities, the examples that we give on all things distance running from the start of distance running training history in the 1800s all the way to modern day practices of some of the top coaches as well as our modest selves. And you know, if you wanted to take on the bear, for example, and you said, you know what? I need some, I need some middle distance training. I need some workouts. Guess what? We've got you covered. We've got, we, you know, I'm just glancing at the number of workouts here and I've been scrolling for the last like 10, 15, 20, 30 seconds now, as I just scroll down because the amount of workouts available that we have and including descriptions of what they do and when you could when you should do them is kind of crazy. So friends and we haven't even scratched the surface. Guess what? We got all yes, all all of Alan Webb's workouts from his professional career, all of them. I have the logs. And Andrew Weeding's workouts from his collegiate career. We haven't even put those up yet, and they're coming. It's insane. You know, we just published last week a uh, the t- Olympic marathon champ. I believe it was women's from 2012, and then a past world champion. Their training logs from Canova, all in complete and full. So, if you like diving into this stuff and nerding out as much as we do, 
check it out. The Scholar Program. You won't be disappointed. All right. Yep. Join today. It's awesome. So let's dive into the bear in the wall. Okay. So we kind of set the stage there. Giving you a little more clarity here. Let's dive into what causes each. So let's start with the bear. What happens when the bear jumps on our back? Well, it tends to be in, in uh, on track races and middle distance races, okay? The end part of it. And what ha- what is happening in there is we have this nice thing called acidosis, okay? The old timers called it lactic acid. Yep. We can debate that old boogeyman. We can debate over what it's called, but the basic premise of it is 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 this hydrogen ions increase, creating an acidic state. Body doesn't function as well. Muscles don't function as well. They don't fire as well. The reactions that are supposed to be happening smoothly, and now there's there's uh, debris in the way, making it where they don't happen smoothly. Okay. And what happens there is as stuff stops starts or stops firing as well, muscles not working as efficient as well, you're getting a decrease in power output and force output. So you can no, no longer yes. sustain the force required to sustain the, the pace that you are running. And that's why it feels like you're falling apart because things are literally shutting down recruitment of muscle is shutting down all thanks to this cascade of um acidosis hydrogen ions energetics that get in the way that make it where it's really difficult to sustain the power output that we need to remember action potentials are all nothing phenomena friends and that's when things are shutting off it's going from all to nothing thus the increasing degree of difficulty experienced in those final steps in a sprint finish to the finish line exactly so now let's contrast that with the wall before we kind of dive into further details what's happening in the wall what happens when we bump well it's pretty it's it might feel the same in the sense things are shutting down and you're not able to sustain that power output But instead of a kind of acidosis getting in the way of um, production of power and muscle and ATP and all that stuff, instead what you're getting is a, a low fuel gauge. It's as if you are starting to run out of the fuel source that is supposed to be delivered that sustains all those reactions and responses that allow us to create that power in the muscle. So one thing that's really important here, I think, is to point out is that it's never that you totally run out of fuel. It's not like a car that runs out of gas and then stops. Instead, what it is, it's like the war- it's like the warning light, right? Where the brain says, oh, crap, we're running out of fuel. Flash the signal on. Start shutting things down to conserve so that we don't run out of fuel because the brain knows that if we actually did run out of glycogen, we're not going to be worried about our performance. We're going to be worried about our life and health and safety. So it shuts us down or the body starts shutting down before we actually completely run out of fuel. So it's not that we 
totally run out of fuel when we hit the wall. It's that we're on the way and the body says, the brain says, crap, we can't sustain this. Shut things down, conserve, slow us down so that we're not dependent on uh, glycogen uh, because that's the other part of it. When we talk about fuel running out, we're talking about glycogen, which is the nice big boost of energy that can sustain high rates of power. Fat can sustain low rates, or in this case, slower speeds based on the energetics of it. So why do we slow down? Why do we hit the wall? A lot of times the slow, slower butts down so that we start using more fat so that we can get to a place where we don't have to do this thing again. Yes, your body cares most about critical organ function. And when you put yourself in a situation where you're compromising or using up that preferred fuel for critical organ function, if you're not trained, if you're not in a trained state that says, hey, it's okay, we can sustain, or you're replenishing, let's say in a marathon with fluid intake or glycogen or carbohydrate, sugar intake or what have you, the body is going to say, you're a crazy person, stop, you're going to kill us. We're going to actually just slow you down because this is not conducive to our survival. Exactly. It's, it's, you know, once you step back and you realize that these are protective mechanisms, both of them. Yes, the, yes, both of them. The body's trying to survive. It does not want an acidic environment because, again, that will kill organs, right? And we don't want to kill our organs. <laughs> right. And, and, and that's what, you know, that's what, what's so interesting about these is they're both protective mechanisms. They're just different. The way I like to look at it is your body is using different ways to send the message that, hey, we need to stop whatever foolishness we're doing. Another part of it is is just like, you know, just like an alarm that goes off, we have different sensitivities to it. So that alarm can go off at, you know, we could have someone who has a trigger finger and just triggers the alarm at the first hint of danger. Or we could have someone who's trained and, you know, maybe that full alarm doesn't go off until later until it's like, oh, yep, we're in really dangerous trouble here. Let's send the send the alarm now. And that is part of also this fitness is that when we look at, for instance, training for these things, let's say acidosis tolerance to get used to it, you're not only training the body to be able to like function in that state. You're training the alarm to come on a little bit later so that you can last a little bit longer because your body says, your body and your brain go, oh, yeah, we're okay. Like, we can handle a little bit of, of this, unlike when you're untrained and, you know, the first, high, the, the first hint of it or sign of it, it goes straight to freak out. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the key thing, like, the bear is about tolerance, right? So we're creating, a to we're tolerating this acidic environment. We're putting up with it because an acidic environment for the body is not healthy. We know this. And a lot of, um, you know, of our ingestion of highly consumed popular processed foods make the body's composition very acidic. And yet when we say very, it's with a grain of salt because it's a tight tolerance that our bodies operate from an alkaline acidity level, right? So if you wildly swing the pendulum, you know, a couple like small percentage points to acidity, that's going to have a cascade of adverse effects if your body is not 
able to cope and tolerate for it for a specific duration. Its goal is to create a homeostatic, safe, normal for basically you to survive, right? Or basically the brain to survive. That's why, again, when people do acidosis tolerance work or at the end of an 800 or even an all-out 400, they complain of headaches. They complain of nausea and vomiting, right? Because when the Think of it when you drink too much alcohol, that increases your acidic state. And if you've overconsumed alcohol in too short of a period, because again, the body metabolizes alcohol on a um, static time um, period rather than consumption percentage of the consumption consumed, it's going to say, well, we can't pr- keep processing all this, so we're going to vomit it out, right? Same situation here with acidosis tolerance. If you don't have a, a built-up um, tolerance to it, it's just going to expel from your gut anything that's in there, food, even water, uh, you know, sports liquid, because it's trying to create a coping mechanism to save you from yourself, essentially, versus the wall is about capacity, is building a capacity to use and have a preference for fatty acids as a higher blend or cocktail of fueling that's coming and being used by your brain muscles body during that extended period of um, aerobic or running activity. So we're, it's two different um, types of training mechanisms. One, we're trying to build a preference and a familiarity for, uh, you know, a certain type of fuel and a chemical breakdown for a certain type of fuel. And the other one, we're trying to build a preference and a familiarity um, for not going, oh shit, I'm going to die because I'm all of a sudden got so acidic. And that's what I always equate acidosis tolerance training to is a hard, hard night out at the bars where you're having Jaeger bombs, lots of tequila, like just think the worst alcohol and the most like vicious alcohol possible and a lot all at once that's essentially what the brain liver and body are processing when you do any kind of acidosis type work versus what um you're training for when you're doing the um you know uh fatty acid or capacity type work or extension type work is to prefer kind of this chewing of the curd if we want to use colloquialisms here of just being able to like chew on this really high rich energy source and be satisfied with it and not and just stay in a, a tight bandwidth where you're not going at too high of an intensity level, not too low of an intensity level, but just Goldilocks right to be able to sustain your effort over the long haul. Yeah, it's it's really, you know, as I sit here and think about it, it's really this kind of balancing out effect, right? Um because in in let's take okay how do we train to deal with the wall what you're essentially trying to do is bump up if we look at that fuel source carbs or fat what you're trying to do is is bump up the speed at which you can sustain some sort of high higher end fat usage right to spare that glycogen to spare that that carbs because normally it, you know the battle of the marathon is how can i run fast enough well, you know, still using fat as some sort of fuel source so that I don't run out of this carbohydrate. 
Yes, essentially conserving the concept of conserving carbs, not ex- expending. Yeah, it's it's like it it's <laughs> you know I'm I'm gonna use an analogy that or that will only work for a couple people who have have played this, but man, back in the early two thousands, there was this PlayStation video game, and they had. It was Olympic track and they had the 1500. It's like one of the only games with the 1500. And it had this like little energy meter, right? And your goal was to get to the, get across the line right before your energy meter just like was plummeted. And if you used your energy meter up too quickly, you just turned into this, what it looks like to, you know, have the bear jump onto your back. You slowed way, way down. And it was fascinating. Uh, We played this game a lot in college. But the way I like to think of the marathon is you have this energy meter, only carbohydrate takes up a lot of it, right? Uses it quickly. Fat uses it very slowly, right? But the problem is you have to run at fast enough speed that is required, but that is mainly carbohydrate fueled. Okay, so what it, what does this all all mean? When we're looking at training for doing the wall, we have two things. We have we're expanding our capacity to use um, fat as a fuel at faster speeds, and then B is with glycogen is we want to make sure we're at maximum capacity. So that's why you have things like fueling beforehand and all that stuff. And then can dip far enough into it before that alarm goes off. Okay. So And don't forget C, Steve. Also throwing some lactate in there as fuel. That's true. Okay. Yeah. So don't forget. it's a complex cock fueling cocktail. <laughs> that is so this is interesting. So a lot of let's dive into this a little bit because lactate yeah. is often thought of as a, you know, because of lactate acidosis is often thought as a, a bad byproduct. Just a whey product. Yeah. yeah. Just as bad boogeyman. And it's not. But the thing is, so your body is smarter than than us. So it realizes, okay, essentially what happens is when we can't if we have glycogen in one muscle, right? It cannot just instantly be transported down the road to some muscle that isn't, you know, nearby. So what happens is lactate is produced and lactate can then be acted on as that fuel source um, as almost like a transportation mechanism, right? Can either go off adjacent to another muscle, can go into the bloodstream, then taken up and used as a fuel source. It isn't the most efficient one. Right. But it's almost like this, this like fail safe of, okay, we're running out of fuel. We can't exactly, you know, transport it really well. Lactate is our last ditch. It's like the, the uh, ambulance sending the, sending the fuel somewhere where it else, where it needs to go. Not a lot of it, not a ton of it is very powerful, but it contributes enough to make a difference. And you can train your body to be more efficient at clearing and then utilizing that lactate as a fuel instead of, quote unquote, just tolerating. Right. And this is lactate clearance slash buffering, which is different than 
acidosis tolerance. And essentially, Steve, I'm going to let you keep talking on this because what you hang your hat on and has made you a quote-unquote marathon guru is understanding this so well. <laughs> I don't know if I'm a marathon guru. I'm just a guy who, for whatever reason, a bunch of, you know, random marathoners decided to let me coach them and they did they, they did pretty well. So it, it, it's, an, it's interesting here. So, okay, so we've got this lactate stuff. Let's talk about training that as a fuel source because I think a lot of times it's the neglected part and I'm glad you brought this up. So how do you do this? Well, this is where we turn to our friend and expert coach Renato Canova who thinks to, you know, providing all the stuff for the scholar program you can learn about too. But anyways, what is genius about some of his workouts is that he sat there and thought about, okay, how do we train this system for our marathoners? And it's actually incredibly simple, but I think brilliant. It's like any truth. It's an un it's uncomplicated once you yes. unpack it. And that's the beauty of Canova's training is Really, it's uncomplicated. It's very simple, but understanding it is not intuitive. So so what do we do? Well, one way we can do this is by alternating back and forth at, we'll call it ab above slower than a pace we'd, you know, you, we'd generally produce much lactate and faster than a, pa a pace that will produce some lactate. Okay, so the idea is pretty simple. We'll, we'll keep it simple. If I go 400 meters on at a pace where I get, maybe I jump from one to two millimoles of lactate, which is kind of easy, up to five to six. Not overwhelming, but something where I get that system. And then I go back down to a pace that generally produces maybe three, so just enough, but not too much. By back going back and forth on that, you're training your body to say, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to learn how to deal with this. And you know what? Or I'm going to learn how to utilize this as a fuel because I'm going a little bit faster, injecting some into it, then going slow enough, but not that slow, slow enough where my body says, okay, I'm still going fast. So I need some energetic energy in here. I've got all this lactate in the system. Let's learn how to utilize it you know, um, as this fuel. So it's this alternating of kind of fast with not really that slow, still kind of steady, keeping your foot on, on the pedal a little bit. And that's the key. And if you looked at it over time, if we do multiple reps of this kind of back and forth, back and forth, alternating, what happens is over time, you know, you've got to deal with a little bit more and your body's got to figure out, okay, by rep four, I got to clear this out. I got to get, I got to figure out how to utilize this as a fuel system. So it's really kind of a, a nice ingenious way uh, to do this is alternating. The other thing that he does really well that is interesting uh, for marathoners is during uh, long marathon runs, for example, so let's say a 20 plus miler, he'll introduce some sort of like interval training it could be you know mile repeats it could be two mile repeats it could be miles um where you go you know medium fast faster and then cycle back around and all you're doing in, is you're playing with this stuff and really good marathon coaches in the u.s do this too i mean uh naz's ben rosario if you've looked at some of his workouts 
they do this thing where they kind of just flow on on their on their marathon pace workouts sometimes where they'll do what I just described there in the sense if their marathon pace for their women, I don't know, is 530, they'll have a thing where they go, you know, 535, then 525, then maybe 510 for a mile, and then back that back up to the slow part. So what are you doing there? Injecting, injecting some, not a ton, but some lactate in there. So your body learns how to deal with it, going back slow so that you can process consume and your hope is over time you develop this capacity or ability to utilize that lactate as a fuel source so that again you're kind of sparing your traditional fuel sources glycogen so that um glycogen in its traditional sense so that you know you can sustain that speed and power and we know from training right that duration sometimes mistaken as gross volume, but duration is the key um, distinguishing factor of improving efficacy and performance. So the more time you can spend doing a highly specific activity, the you know quicker the rate of adaptation will be provided it's followed by the ad- ad- adequate recovery needed for it. Meaning this is really just interval training applied in a kind of a different way to elevating your lactate threshold, elevating your ability to buffer uh, and shuttle or clear lactate. And if we just stop and think about it, the standard steady run right just below your lactate threshold for six miles, 30 minutes for, you know, some guys or 40 minutes, right? You, You only get really towards the end there a little bit of that dosing. Because Canova's genius is understanding you need to step way over the line in terms of what you can handle for a long duration of time so that when you scale back in a racing scenario, when you have no break and you're not alternating or or oscillating, that that lower um, lactate producing environment, your body's not signaling all the alarm bells. So if you're just doing... A steady state run with no break, even though it seems like, yeah, this is really beneficial and mimics the racing environment on a um, you know superficial level. Actually, it doesn't because the amount of time that you get at that higher than um, normal or higher than racing um, lactate producing environment is significantly diminished. And I apply this to my middle distance runners, even at the track level by doing a very similar type alternating workout, whether it's 300s or 400s with very brief recovery intervals or recovery intervals that are not recovery, these float intervals as the old timers called them, or disciplined where you're again altering. That could be the classic workout that a lot of um, middle distance athletes I've worked with know is about three, a 3K rep where it's 400 meters at 3K effort and then 100 meters at half marathon or 10k depending on the athlete's fitness pace right and the key is is not to necessarily increase the pace of the forum year rep fitness or efficacy is defined by increasing the pace of that 100 meter quote-unquote float or roll on if you're familiar with peter thompson's new interval training it's all in the same family right so that's just a more shorter consolidated abrasive way but the key and what Canova talks about a lot, and you see if you're a scholar and t- taking the course, is you have to go beyond 
highly beyond the athlete's current lactate threshold. And the way to do that and to sustain a long duration of exposure to that without chronic breakdown or fatigue is through alternations. And that is the genius of what Canova did. And, you know, this is something that um, has been utilized, especially in the East Africans. Uh, in Oh, a, yeah. I mean, the standard way. like minute on, minute off for yeah. an hour that the Kenyans and Eden do basically every Tuesday. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> that's it. <laughs> e- e- exactly. That's it. And, you know, I remember... So way back in the day when I was competing in college, I think it was my sophomore year um, at Rice, we had our conference 5K championships, right? And there were a couple of Kenyan athletes from UTEP who we'd compete against and cross and then on the track. And I remember in the 5K, they did this nice little thing, which killed me, which was every 200 meters, they just subtly shift the pace. Now it would be like, up, oh, we're going to run a 36 for this 200, then drop it down to the 34, then back to 35 mid, then maybe this one at 33, then back down to 36. And it was just this shifting back and forth. And we weren't running that fast, you know, compared to our capabilities, maybe mid 14s, you know, 1430, 1420 pace, something like that. So it's not that the pace was that difficult or, you know, um, outside of my realm, but it was this back and forth shifting that eventually just caused me to crater. And I ran 1430 or something, just being like bewildered on like, that was way tougher than it should have been. And it was a perfect example of, they were equipped to eject a little bit of lactate back off, clear, utilize it, etc., Then inject a little bit, back off, clear, utilize it, etc. Meanwhile, me, you know, Myler Steve at the time, did not have that ability, right? I did not have the capacity that they did. So it's not, and you see this in marathons, especially comparing the, let's say the, uh, the time trial, get on the, on the pace train or not, versus the, Boston Marathon style or the Olympics or World Championship style where you see some of these crazy surges and then easing off. That's what we're testing our ability here. So it's real world racing. Yeah, I mean, Hendrik Ramallah, Paul Turgot, like in New York City Marathon, famous for Ramallah especially, mid-race, mile 16 to 18, all of a sudden just dropping a 420 bomb, right? And just lighten up the field. And either creating a gap or creating uh, a situation where people went with him in that kind of real racing environment where it's like he knew he was prepared to be able to do that back off and recover quote unquote, or clear that lactate that was injected for that four hard minutes of running at that stage in the race and still sustain anyone who went with him or tried to even ante the pace up who hadn't done that preparation wilted quickly. And Again, I think a lot of times we just think about, okay, all I got to do is just do a lot of long, you know, mileage and easy running, this whole cult of the LSD running, which has a lot of benefit for, you know, runners of all shapes and sizes and durations. 
However, without that ability to tolerate or buffer or clear high, high, high capacity of lactate, when you get in a racing situation, you're basically a one-trick pony, and all you can do is stay militant to your steady pace um, race plan and conditioning that you've done, and you have the inability to actually race should surges or unpredictable situations arise where you have to respond to the people versus um, stay wetted or handcuffed to your pace strategy. Exactly. So it's, you know, it, it's interesting because you see this historically, but it's, it's, it's not some magic ability. It's a trained ability. It's very much trained. And you look at like Dillinger, what Dillinger did a lot with Prefontaine. If you think of Prefontaine's 30-40 drill, that's that, right? Uh, you know, even when Dillinger was coaching Salazar in for the marathons, there was a lot of in Salazar's training under Dillinger's eye, mile on, mile off, mile at, you know, 430, mile at 530, or mile at five flat, mile at six flat, right? A lot of that alternation work that happened on, say, the Amazon Trail down in Eugene. So, you know, we can go through and, you know, a lot of the annals of history and realize that even, let's say, Lydiard, a lot of, or Jim Ryan, a lot of their intervals were, or even Zatapak, right? We can go back to the granddaddy of them all. Zatapak's training was exactly that. His famous 40 times 400 meters was essentially going out, quote unquote, fast, 70, 72, but those, he wasn't, you know, for 200 meters, because he'd go, his concept was, I'm going to recover for half the distance of my interval. But those weren't walk-in-the-park recoveries, as was prescribed at the time. Those were floats. Those were runs. Those were, you know, they weren't just farting around. So even though his, the intervals he was running, the 400 meters, was only like 72s, the 200 was again creating this lactate clearance situation and you're thinking about it from a time standpoint it's essentially the kenyan's minute on minute off right he's he's essentially going 70 seconds for 400 70 seconds or so for 200 it's slower but same principle applied it's it's there in the training throughout history of the most successful runners at the highest levels and it's something you know that hasn't been actually too well publicized or marketed in the mass media literature that we found in the last, you know, 30 years. But with Canova's, you know, rapid success with all his athletes, Jerry does this too a little bit uh, with his athletes, um, you know, like the famous 400, 200, 200 forever drill. You know, I, a couple, several years ago, watched him and uh, administer that to Selinsky and taking camp. And I was just like, well, how long, how long are they doing this workout oh, forever or until, you know, they really start to fall off the pace and I go, what pace? He goes, yeah, the, the easier pace. Like, I'm not worried about how fast they can run. I'm worried about how long they can sustain this turnover of fast, slow, fast, slow, fast, slow. Right. And that's what it was. It was just, he was creating a lactate clearance situation for these highly conditioned athletes. Yep. So it's, it applies, you know, we often think of it in terms of the marathon, but it applies on the track. There was some wonderful data from Canova a while ago, and we've got this in the scholar program where he actually looked at the lactate levels at, I think it was 10, 10 K pace. And 
um, he found that when athletes were able to create this, they were almost able to create this kind of steady state or this, this lactate steady state at much faster than what we traditionally call like a lactate threshold pace again for them, 10 K to 5 K pace. And his hypothesis was they were able to do that because they trained up their ability to like clear utilize all this stuff to such a high degree through some of the components that we said which then because they were able to keep the steady state at 5k 10k which then allowed them to dip deep into their capacity their lactate capacity acidosis tolerance at the end of the race because they hadn't utilized much because they were at a steady state so their lactate levels relatively low consistent throughout and then that last like 800 it was like bam through the roof right and i mean in a certain degree the same is true for pure lydiard um base training preparation where you're running an hour to two hours every day hard and degrees of hard remember one quarter's effort was for his guys like 520 515 pace right and three quarters effort was four forty, you know, eights. Like these guys were moving um, for those quote unquote long base runs of ten to twenty miles. Um, and he found out a way with probably organically too, with because if you read it, oh, do it on a hilly course, right? So you're going up the hill, spike in lactate, going down the hill. You're still moving at a good leg speed, but because you don't have that resistance, you're you know getting some clearance in there. When we just sit and think about it, it is everywhere and permeated um, subtly in the training of all these coaches throughout history, whether intended and very conscious like Canova or a happy consequence like, say, Lydiard. Yes, I'm glad I'm glad you brought up the hills because that is another sneaky way to get this stuff. It is Mm -hmm. because you're changing the muscle recruitment, you're changing all this stuff, you're changing the force requirement, and you're going to introduce some lactate in there and then crest the hill and then maybe stay flat or go down it, which you're going to train to be able to utilize that stuff. And this is why longer hill repeats work. You know, I have coaches who go, oh yeah, we did 300, 400, you know, quote unquote, you know, hills, short hills, or four or five minute hills, quote unquote, long hills, right? Or Canova is famous for using all like 10 second power hills, uh, you know, short hills and then also long hills. And with that walk, jog down recovery, you know, that is one mechanism at play that is also being traded in conjunction with a lot of others. I want to switch gears real quick and talk back about fatty acids and why long accumulations of miles relative to the heart and the heart's utilization and preference for fat as its primary fueling substrate is really important and how that's a vital part of training but not the end-all be-all that we once thought with the accumulate as much long slow distance training as possible but it's a really important component to get that efficacy of the heart to be able to process digest and prefer large amounts of fatty acid and kind of one of the sneaky, you know, keys to distance running um, prowess that is kind of known, but a little, I think, not as well understood as it could be. Uh, Let's 
Steve, let's talk about the mitochondrial development, the preference for the heart as a muscle um, for feeling substrate, and just contrasting that with the other preference for the other muscles uh, and organs feeling uh, desirables. Oh, man. We're just going to call this the uh, physiology uh, podcast. I'm going to need need to break break out my uh, textbooks and remind mind myself of all this stuff during grad school you're the science of running guy man i'm putting you on blast let's go yeah <laughs> the problem is um you know i forget things but anyways it, okay. it it it's it's interesting here if we look at uh fuel utilization and and, and preference here i like to think of it i'm gonna try and simplify things i like to think of it as we are training and biasing our body to prefer different uh, fuel sources to it to a to a degree. So how you train things can bias bias what your body kind of consumes to a degree. So if this is the reason, I'll step back. This is the reason if you did all kind of acidosis tolerance, all this stuff, right? Your mitochondria would be less efficient at processing things like, you know, fat as a fuel source, glycogen with oxygen available, etc. because your your body isn't challenged in a way where it says, "Hey, I need to I need that that aspect." This is where it comes the balancing act of training. Because if you look at if you look at uh mitochondrial use, for example, and and we tie it back to let's say fuel utilization or lactate. You have different transporters, specifically with lactate, that are up or down regulated that do different parts of the the transporting, like into the cell to be processed, out of the cell to be processed, and different variations of it. You have these different they call them MCTs. Uh, I'm going to test my memory here. Monocarboxylate lactate transporters something like that if you're a listener you can go ahead and rag on me and correct it but um what essentially does is you have these you know i think there's at last check at least four maybe five or six now in the research which have these different abilities essentially and these different like strengths in transporting um lactate across the membrane to be utilized why are we going down this path of okay why steve going on this science nerd thing because different styles of training will train different transporters and depending on the transporter you you train or upregulate, like that shifts your capacity a little bit to utilize this the same thing to a degree applies when we're looking at other fuel utilization you know um other inner i'll call it energetic processes of using, you know, glucose, glycogen, fatty acids, all this other things, is we are up or down regulating either the transporters or the enzymatic reactions that process or help process these things and break them down, or are the rate limiting enzymes. And depending on what combination we do of this stuff, right? It, it shifts how well we utilize things in it to a to degree. So stepping back, what does all this kind of science mumbo jumbo mean? 
in the real world. It is almost like a balancing act, okay? And this is why we're looking at, okay, if we do long, slow distance all the time, will it develop these mitochondria? Yes, to a degree and in a specific function. But if we don't then challenge them in a way that, you know, shifts that rate limiting factor. So we challenge them with, let's say, marathon pace stuff or faster stuff or stuff where uh, the rate of, um, of uh, you know, breakdown going from glucose all the way down or glycogen all the way down to ATP. If we don't challenge it in a different way, then we're, we're just we're going to hit a, a, a uh, a limiting factor in some way. So as a coach, a plateau of sorts. Yes. yes. As a coach, Not all a we're doing is we're saying it's almost like a, it's like a water hose with all these kinks, right? <laughs> we fix one. If we only pay attention and we fix the one kink we can see, it's like, oh, this is great. Look at all the water flowing. Well, then downstream somewhere, it's going to hit this other kink, right? Depending on what what way things go. And our job as a coach is decide. What path? What paths do we need to take? Because it can't just be one path. What paths do we need to take? And then how do we shift and uh, eliminate or minimize those kinks and those pipes for the job we're trying to do? Hopefully, listeners, this made some semblance of sense. But essentially what we're trying to do, and this is why this balance of training and knowing when you're trying to do things matters, right? The long, slow distance stuff, right, works really well on the, you know, heart expanding, uh, increasing the the size of the heart, etc. It works well with challenging mitochondria development in one direction, but eventually we de- adapt and have to challenge that development, that enzymatic process in another direction, which is why. Even the genius of Lydia had said, we're going to spend a while doing this kind of, you know, for him, it wasn't long, slow, but high volume with some intensity. And then, you know what, we're going to go in a completely different direction and we're going to do all these hill things and we're going to do five days of interval training and we're going to six days, six, six days of <laughs> interval training. And you know what, we're going to do this because because the body adapts and we've got to now challenge and figure out this other limiting factor. And you know what? Um, the marathon wasn't as big of a deal back in later things, but I guarantee you if he was born 20 years later and it was the peak of, you know, after Frank Shorter got the marathon boom going and Bowerman, all those, if, if, um, if Lydiard was at his coaching peak in the, let's say eighties, nineties, two thousands, when the marathon is really taking off, I guarantee you he would shift his periodization model even more knowing that you know he'd have to shift these demands and uh and create some different training stimulus um than you know he would even for the track stuff yeah and this is important to just remember right the heart is the one muscle that's always always working if it stops working you got problems so ergo the heart already runs primarily to fuel it on fatty acid because that's the most available fuel source, right? Glycogen we talked about has a limiting storage capacity in the liver and the muscles. So one reason long, slow running works is it 
increases the preference for the heart to um, utilize fatty acids. And the irony here is this, right? The at, we know from a mus how to train muscular endurance and hypertrophy is just to do also a lot of reps for a long time of something, right? A lot of stimulus. Well, in distance runners, the biggest muscle or hypertrophy type muscle is the heart, right? Every other distance runner or distance runners start to atrophy actually their other skeletal muscles and get very thin, right? That's a key chronic sign of distance running training. Very thin, but huge heart, right? And sometimes to the point where doctors like, you have a large heart, we're, we're worried about you. Um, but what's happening here, right, is through aerobic training, we're, and especially if you double, right, what we're doing is in very discrete time periods of this kind of easier running, we're training that heart's ability to conserve glycogen to, again, think of the conservation to shunt it to other places. The heart says, I don't need as much glycogen to pump marathon, 10K, 5K. I prefer more fatty acids. So we can, hey, body, you can use glycogen in other places that might need it during this highly intense endeavor because I'm already trained to use a lot more fatty acid here. And we know from David Castile's research that there's um, discrete time periods where there's changes in the respiratory change of oxygen and carbon dioxide, um, which indicates a shift of utilization of carbohydrates and fats by working muscles. And they happen very um, discreetly. So one of those key shifts is at 30 minutes, right? So primarily using a lot of glycogen and carbohydrate, not a lot of fatty acid through 30 minutes, i.e. why a lot of recovery runs and Bowerman was like 20 minutes, right? People naturally figured out, even without, say, the science at the time, like this is kind of the limit for as much as you want to do for it to be this type of nature of an event. So a true pure recovery run is up to 30 minutes before the shift starts to happen, right? You feel good. You're just using glycogen. It's not no alarms. You're well-trained. You can go replenish those glycogen stores real quick afterward, peanut butter, jelly sandwich, what have you. But after 30 minutes, we start to get a subtle shift to more of a fatty acid preference in the whole body from a fueling mechanism. And then at 60 minutes, you start to get this bigger bump of shift towards it. And at 75 minutes, even bigger. And then we actually start to create a cap or a ceiling around 90 minutes to maybe two hours, right? And you see this in distance running training. Most people's runs, even Lydiard said, oh, up to two hours is enough because what happens after two hours is this plateau and actually recession starts to happen where the, the cost benefit analysis is not in your favor. There starts to be mechanical breakdown, uh, you know, tendons and tissues start to get dehydrated um, and you get that stiffness right from a longer, long run. But if we look at a lot of Lydiard's training, even then people who uh, applied his principles like Ron Doss or Marty LaCour um, back in the day, there was a lot of running that happened in the 75 minute to 95 minute range. And that easy running, uh, and Frank Shorter is a good example as well. I'm glad you brought it, Frank, um, demonstrates the efficacy of this process. Now, the one thing they did that Canova recently figured out and flipped was they would do their easier, you know, what they called over distance. Uh, like just relaxed run in the morning and then do their harder um, either steady state or workout interval workout in the afternoon. What happened with this is the potency of that afternoon workout couldn't be as 
uh, high because, you know, glycogen was utilized a little bit in that morning run. Um, so they're a little depleted relative if they do it in the morning when their stores are topped off from fresh from a night's rest plus a little bit of breakfast, they can endure longer durations at specific paces and then get the training benefit of the other mechanisms we've talked about from the longer duration. The genius of Canova and the genius of basically a lot of distance running, you know, uh, professional modern coaches is today is that second recovery run in the evening that is more an aerobic training effort that we're not trying to worry about the pace, but we're just trying to create a situation where you're running for an hour. If you look at a lot of Canova's training for his marathon, there's recovery days are hour easy in the morning, hour easy in the afternoon. After a hard marathon workout in the morning of, you know, essentially, if you look at a lot of the work, it tends to be about 13 to 15 miles of inner of work for Canova's marathoners, which again, hits that kind of sweet spot of 90 minutes of really hard running. Then in the evening, that four o'clock run, one hour easy, right? And what Canova is doing and what these runners are doing is getting the dosing of all this type of balanced training sequenced in the most conducive and effective training manner. And that's really, I think, Steve, how we have to think about training sometimes as a distance coach and as any coach is it's chemical. It's drugs, right? We're dosing the athlete with certain chemical reactions, enzymatic, uh, metabolic, you know, you name it, and creating this efficacy and tolerance or familiarity with this, with these dosing of this drug. And sometimes the drug is primarily you know, a preference for this feeling substrate. Sometimes the drug's primarily uh, building this neuromuscular response. Sometimes the drug is, you know, uh, building this tolerance to this really harsh chemical acidosis, right? And if you think about every train, training is just a drug, like food's a drug, like sleep's a drug because it promotes and um, contributes and recruits a certain reaction in the body then it starts to come a lot simpler. And this is, again, why the unbalanced playing field with performance-enhancing drugs is such a key issue of contention is because it interrupts or enhances some of these chemical processes that take a long time through training and conditioning to um, master or elevate. It's just essentially a shortcut, right? Um, but this is why, again, it the double run, the recovery run, this is why these practices work so well. And even sometimes why the old timers, Steve Jones, Frank Shorter in certain periods, um, you know, Ron Hill would employ triples and why Kenyans employ triples. David Rashida's training as a youngster, as a junior was, he ran three times a day, triples, morning, continuous, steady state run, a interval workout, a speed workout, like in mid afternoon and a shakeout recovery run in the early evening, late afternoon, um, because again, they un the coaches in these in situations and athletes understood how to balance all these things with workloads that were tolerable and beneficial to what they're training the athlete to do. You know, I'm glad you brought up the doubles um, and triples because it's a fascinating thing. Uh, because a lot of times, what you're doing too is you're your um well there's a couple different things is you mentioned these kind of nice 
uh, time periods this 30 60 90 one of the other things that's fascinating about 30 minute runs for example is that is also about 20 to 30 minutes in is when you start getting a growth hormone release so you look at recovery and it like oh of course it makes sense it's the perfect time to get a little boost to growth hormone um, enough to kind of help our recovery without causing us undue fatigue makes sense there too the other thing that is interesting that that also falls into this is another way to manipulate this stuff is morning runs you can do fasted which will shift your fuel utilization and allow you to uh get into this preferential uh fatty acid um utilization as as your glucose levels are liver glucose levels are low from overnight fasting and all that stuff it'll shift you there earlier so you can train that ability without having to go as long let's say the two hour you know length that you might have to to get there because you're already in a in a fasted state so you can you know that's one that you're not going to want to do every all the time but it's something that is a new another tool in your toolbox to kind of shift this this fuel shift the stimulus so that you can work on um, developing the ability to uh, get through the wall. And it's also too, just side caveat, that's how I lost 30 pounds of excess weight was just running 10 to 14 miles in the morning, just a cup of coffee, well hydrated with water in a fasted state. It wasn't hard, wasn't fast, but because I understood this, I was like, well, that's a way I can lose this fat because again, creating this preference for fatty acid, like that is what the body is going to cannibalize and use from the heart and also, um, uh, you know, all the working muscles that play there in the run. And, you know, in a couple, as a matter of like three months, like it just atrophied all that excess flubber I had on me just because I stuck with that training program. So sneaky weight loss tip, if that's the business you want to get in, also helpful for training too. All right. All right, John. A little bit of everything this podcast, Steve. A little bit of everything. A little bit of everything. All right. Oh, and we haven't even gone to the bear, you know? Jeez. So that's what I'm so we're at we're at about an hour. Here's what I'm gonna propose. Since we you know, we went deep on this one, which was a lot of fun. Um, but we do. We go deep. Give the people what they want. You you know, I'm gonna give out a uh uh Shout out to the uh, A&M Cross Country coach, uh, Coach McRaven, who at a meet recently, you know, pulled me aside and said, hey, I I listened to, I can't remember what episode it was. He was like, I listened to episode whatever. And he was like, you know what I really enjoy about your guys' podcast? And I was like, what? He's like, it's just like two coaches talking and nerding out. There's no like special you know, production behind it. There's no like, Hey, this is scripted. It's just two coaches talking like we would at meets. And I'm like, that is what we're doing. So, um, thank you for our listener, coach McRaven from A&M. Yeah. Great shout coach. out to great coach. Great guy. So awesome. Um, and on that note, I think what we should do is to give us space is next episode. We're going to go as deep into the bear as we just went into the wall so yes if you want to learn about 
you know, how to deal with acidosis, the process of hydrogen ions, where do my mitochondria come into play, all that good stuff, muscle function. Well, we will delve into it next week on our full episode of The Bear. And if you were sparked by, oh my gosh, these guys threw so much science at me, so much history. We talked literature, we talked shorter, we talked Ron Dawes, we talked Canova and modern training and Zatapak. We talk science of fuel utilization, mitochondria. Oh, wait, hold on. Time out. Wait, I, you just reminded me of one thing. Sure. I just, we got to call this out before we end this podcast. Going back to kind of the aerobic fatty acid utilization. Walking, underrated practice. If you look back, right, Steve, at the training yeah. of the original distance runners, Walter George, you know, in their training, are two three-hour walks. Walks do elicit, provides over a hilly course or at a you know a, a good enough clip, elicit that kind of recovery hormonal fatty acid utilization of like 125 to 130 beats per minute of the heart. Like it, it, you know, you at first you read it, you go, they're not running, they're running two, four miles a day, right? But then you're like, oh, they're walking two to four hours a day. It was, an, it was at the time a very sneaky and correct way to train the body that they just, again, organically happened upon because it worked. But now we know why it works. So when if you are a scholar and you start to look at the early, early training of distance running and modern distance running and walking is a huge component, now you know why. That's right. The early uh, flying fins as well included yeah. a no, yeah, you name it. Lot, a lot, lots of, of walking. Mm-hmm. So a lot of walking. If you'd okay. like, if you'd like to understand more, if you're confused as as all get out after listening to this, guess what? We've got a solution for you. Scholar program includes all this science, all this history, all the modern training, and it's only getting bigger, better, and more in depth so if you want to check that out head on over check it out link is in the show notes we appreciate you guys listening we hope you enjoyed the depth of conversation there's only so many places you're going to get this much nerding out i don't know where else you get it if someone else has has uh has some uh, suggestions send them please through. let us know because we want those types of nerds on this podcast yeah. <laughs> or we want to listen to it too yep exactly yes. but thank you for listening hope you enjoyed it and check out the scholar program look forward to next week nerding out on the bear oh yeah <laughs>